Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Ed. Always Ed. Pronouns are they and them. And today we're talking about a subject near and dear to my heart. Star Wars role-playing games. Yay! When you get your laser swords and your laser guns and your spaceships and your Millennium Falcons and your uh, Wookiees, and you go into space and you fight stormtroopers or pirates or bounty hunters or rebels, I guess, if you want to be the Empire. Whatever. There have been a number of Star Wars role-playing games since the end of Star Wars. Well, the end of Star Wars. Since Return of the Jedi came out. Star Wars will never end. I don't think it will. Disney's not going to let that cash cow go unmilked. Moo. And we're going to talk about Star Wars role-playing games. All of them. Not just a specific one. But before we really dig in deep on Star Wars role-playing games, we have a segment on this podcast we like to call The Week in Hobby. Ed, how about you go first? Uh, Did some more D&D, finally finished the quest line that we were on. It seemed like it was taking forever, so we finally hit the next XP milestone, and we can finally, quote, keep the game moving, which is entirely my fault as the DM. I don't think that's your fault. I don't know necessarily what has spurred my brain, but starting to look beyond D&D as far as RPGs go, for whenever we finish this game, or it peters out, or whatever happens, but I uh, ordered a copy of Morgborg, which is on its way from Sweden, since I've been diving headlong back into Dark Souls, and I had seen that there was a Dark Souls RPG coming out from Steamforged, and was looking at that, and then you suggested Morgborg, which I have a feeling is going to be more Dark Souls than the official Dark Souls RPG could ever hope to be. So, that'll be interesting. Yeah, I think... I, I don't see how anything could be more Dark Souls than a game where certain player characters have three hit points. Yeah, so that one that one could be good for, like, short games. Not everything necessarily has to be a gigantic, epic game like Rime of the Frostmaiden. Um, and then I was also looking around at the Aliens RPG, uh, since I've got a couple of ideas for that one. And then also got a... Finally got a copy of Thirsty Sword Lesbians uh, at our local game shop. So I don't know if that one's actually going to get played, but I'm more than happy to support other queer game creators. And uh, I don't know, maybe when in-person gaming is a thing again and can find some more queer specific game groups out there, can try some of that. Uh, But that one's also power. So a modification of Powered by the Apocalypse, which uh, you've been doing for one of your other games. Powered by the Apocalypse is fun. Let's see, what else? In addition to going back to the video game version of Dark Souls, which is like a weird form of therapy. For some reason, it's really helpful in pulling me out of this existential black hole. Uh, been going back to working on the Dark Souls miniatures because I remember how excited I was for those when they first came out. And didn't make a whole lot of progress beyond just doing the player characters. So as we speak, I'm currently painting up some uh, hollow zombie soldiers. I tried to do some more infinity earlier this week. I managed to sand down those really horrid green stuff bases that I had made and they look 
passable, not as good as the other ones, but the first model that I picked up uh, immediately fell apart into its constituent components. Oh, that's... And so I was like, nope, don't have the patience for this and immediately put it back. So I'm tempted to just kind of shelve Infinity for the moment, which would be a shame because I really like how the game plays, but I just cannot deal with these miniatures and maybe I just haven't put enough brain into it, but I feel like I'm not, not able to pull off the paint scheme that I want. It's like, I can see it in my brain, but it's just not getting down to the brush, which has been frustrating. But I think if I was actually able to like work on them for a stretch of time without getting incredibly frustrated with the miniatures, I might be able to just get it done. But so far they're, they're far down on my list of actually getting them into a playable state. So I don't know, maybe when we're actually playing more infinity and I have more incentive to get them done, it'll work. But did you see the the announcement from Corvus belly about their line of fantasy miniatures war crow? Maybe so far, it's just an announcement video that they put out at Adepticon that says, they're producing a line of fantasy miniatures and it's called Warcrow. There isn't any pictures of miniatures or anything, just some very vague like setting in game stuff. It 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 doesn't. I'm not like pumped for it or anything. It's just like oh, here's some vague things and a thing that this miniatures company that I like is going to be making fantasy miniatures. Cool. They have, however, said that they are fully plastic. That will be nice and. Maybe maybe when Infinity gets around to, like, N5 or they decide to do a big re-release of all their miniatures, they'll all come out in plastic. Well, I expect it means that any future Infinity miniatures are probably going to be all plastic as well. And then, like you said, re-releases will probably stop being metal. Yeah, I I would feel absolutely no shame in just melting down the ones that I have that are still unpainted. And, I don't know, doing something with the slag and just buying an entirely new set of plastic miniatures just for how much shenanigans I've had to put up with these metal ones. Melt them down and recast them into a scale war memorial. Something like that. So, I don't know. I keep telling myself that they're going to get finished. They may or may not, but I feel like right now it's better to just move on to stuff that is more fulfilling and less taxing to work on. Yep, I get you. So for my weekend hobby, I've had two Eberron campaign games and uh, got together with some friends and played board games. My Eberron games, the first one, the party healed the lycanthropy on the paladin, so that's no longer an issue. They gotten uh, The party's monk got in touch with an orphan who... Because he's a monk and has been going around and giving money to orphans and feeding orphans, the orphan's like, help me. I'm the son of a duke from the other, from the next kingdom over, and my father was killed, and my uncle's taken over, and my name is Hamlet. Wait, no, it's not Hamlet. Right, you and every other orphan. They instantly believed him, and it wasn't just because they all ruled really poorly. But they believe him. They're going to go and try and deal with that. Uh, but before they could leave town, the 
player whose character is actually a child had a couple of people hired by her parents to come and find her show up. And uh, the party had to knock them out and then run. Uh, yeah, so those two are going to be a reoccurring thing. As they are, like, official bounty hunters. And they have official paperwork. And they're like, your parents want you to come home. Stop running away. Just shows them a picture of just some Kansas farmhouse. Well, and eh, no, they're, they're from Sharn, so... Not Kansas farmhouse. It's, uh... Yeah. In any case, there'll be reoccurring things, and they'll be probably doing more elaborate measures to capture the person. It, it, it was pretty funny. They went up and they're like, excuse me, are you character name? And the player's like, uh, I'm not that. I'm obviously fake name. And one of the other <laughs> players is like, what? No. You, why are you giving them a fake name? Your real name is that thing that they said. Bro, shit. Yeah, so the party, like, fled town, got on a boat, went to next location, and on their way there, they got attacked by a wyvern. Wyvern? Whatever, it's not a dragon, it's the the, the weak dragon equivalent. It wants to be a dragon. It wants to stab you with its poisonous tail. And that's kind of where the session ended. We're going to start combat on that in the next session. Uh, the other group started with a fight on a lightning rail train. That went pretty fun. Um, they had a big fight. They defeated the people attacking them. But it was fairly close. Uh, the guy, the leader of the... The Order of the Emerald Claw leader of this party that was attacking them tried to get away. The Artificer chased him using Expedious Retreat versus Haste. So it was... They both ran pretty far away from the train after jumping off. And then... Ended up 1v1, <clears throat> which the Artificer realized after the guy drank a couple of healing potions that, in fact, 1v1-ing this guy was the wrong choice. And um, after a conversation where the enemy basically started to plant some seeds of doubt about uh, who their employer is and what their employer's been up to, and also played the, like, we're both soldiers card, uh, the Artificer chose to ran, run away instead. I was going to say, did you have, like, cherry blossoms falling in the background and everything? No, it it was. They were in, like, some ancient ruins at night, though. So, it was pretty... It, and it was more like they were skulking around, like, hiding behind stuff, because both of them had magic missile available. It's like the end of Return of the Jedi, when he's looking for Luke in the throne room. A little of that, yeah. Um... Yeah, that was certainly kind of an inspiration for it. There was like a lot of like monologuing back and forth between them, which was good. Um, also, they, like he took the initial monologue opportunity to drink a potion, and then later the player was like, uh, "He's monologuing again. Can I drink a potion this time?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." Chug. Like uh, that doesn't bother me. I'm I I like people doing that sort of thing. That went well. They. Made it to town, turned in the quest stuff, got some money, and got hired by a local merchant to delve into the Mornland and recover some art items that are were stored in a warehouse there. And that's what they're headed into. It's going to be very um, 
very stalker. Yes. I already have some stuff set up. Go, you have to go kill Strelok. That's your first objective. Well, I think the living cloud kill spell is going to be a little more terrifying for them. It's quite an anomaly. Yes, and then instead of just random bandits, there's going to be a group of Warforged who are salvaging the same location that they are. And who work for the Lord of Blades. I don't think I'm familiar with that. I only know the Queen of Blades. Or Lady... The Lady of Pain is the Planescape. Queen of Blades is Starcraft. The Lord of Blades is Eberron. He is a Warforged kill-all-humans kind of guy. Warforged killbot. Yeah, he's a Warforged killbot, and I sometimes refer to him as like a demigod because he's basically CR20 at this point, and he's... Fun. He's like a religious leader for a lot of Warforged and believes in Warforged supremacy and is trying to make the Mornland a, like, homeland for Warforged. He's Warforged Magneto. I I dig it. Yeah, like, he's probably evil because he will just straight up kill any non-Warforged he runs into. I have the miniature for him. He's super cool. Give him some, like, electromagnets. I mean, he has artificer spells. But yeah, that that's what's going on. And then did board games with people. We played Red Dragon Inn and we played Root. Is Red Dragon Inn any good? I keep seeing it and I'm like, I really want to play it, but I've heard kind of meh reviews of it. It's okay. It's a little, it can be a little samey because it's fairly, it's a fairly simple game. It's a party game. For people who want something slightly more complicated than, um, like, code names or some of the very, very simple party games, but don't want to play a, like, super complicated Euro game where you have to set pieces up and stuff. Uh, its biggest issue is that it's a screw-the-leader kind of thing where you can tell who's winning and play, and people always pile on them. That actually sounds like it might be perfect for my group. Yeah, in fact, I think your group might enjoy it. It's a, it's good for social stuff. Yeah, the more the more social components, the better. I'm not like a huge social gaming person because I'm a weird, introverted, not social person. Uh, but I find the more I do it, the better I'm getting at it. But it's still just not my preferred genre. I did also forget to mention that uh, for my birthday, my wife got me a fancy tool that is originally used for shaking test tubes in a lab, and uh, you can use it to shake paint. So if you hear uh, that low rumbling in the background, that's me shaking paint. I will never again have to shake paint like a peasant. It's amazing. Well, as a peasant who shakes paint, I now shake my fist at you. But with our weeks in hobby taken care of, it's time to talk about Star Wars. We need the Star Wars theme on Kazoo to insert in here. Wait, no, that's Star Trek. Um, and we immediately get a copyright strike from Disney. I don't think you can copyright... Isn't copyright strike specifically a YouTube thing? I think we just get a cease and desist from Disney. Something like that. Get Mickey with a couple of stormtroopers handing us a lawsuit. Ho 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 ho! I'm glad you did that because I don't 
I don't think my voice can go high enough to pull off Mickey Mouse. I can do that. I've, I've wanted to follow it with like a Mickey Mouse saying a good evil Star Wars line, but I don't have any off the top of my head. <laughs> Witness the firepower of this fully operational battle station, Goofy. The awesome firepower of this fully armed and operational legal department. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but before it was bought by Disney, Star Wars. Star Wars has been an integral part of the American nerd community since A New Hope first hit theaters. Erica. It's interesting and potentially telling that the films came out around the same time that the first real role-playing games did. Oh, I never stopped to think about that. Yeah, and the crossover between fans of Star Wars and fans of role-playing games was immediate. Stories of people wanting lightsabers in their Dungeons and Dragons is uh, a kind of a classic. Freaking nerds. So, given how much there was a crossover, and how much George Lucas loved his licensed toys, games, and supplemental income items for the franchise, it's kind of surprising that the official RPG for Star Wars wasn't published until 1987, four years after Return of the Jedi. Well, I guess maybe you gotta kind of let RPGs, like, grow a bit as a genre before you jump straight in. There were already quite a few by the mid-80s, so... Yeah, I don't know. Seems like you probably could have done it a little earlier. Maybe someone just decided that uh, it wouldn't be as profitable as action figures. I mean, that's probably true. Except for the part where Hasbro ends up buying Wizards of the Coast. Boo. Boo. So, personally, I think Star Wars is one of the best film franchises to get an RPG. Like, setting-wise. The galaxy is vast, the ability of small groups of interesting people to travel and do things is kind of a core part of the story of the films, right? The slightly pulp adventure style of combat and action is also helpful. You can describe characters swinging across chasms or riding animals into battles without it really being weird and breaking immersion. It's just a Star Wars thing. Additionally, the wide availability and cultural knowledge of the films and the TV shows at, at this point, means that when you say, oh, he pulls out a lightsaber, everybody knows what that is. You don't have to explain it, and you can kind of imply things, and most people are going to understand it without having to have del delved super deeply into the lore of the setting. Wait, so they have, they have sabers made of light? Yeah, new thing. Amazing. I know, right? So the first Star Wars RPG, known as Star Wars, colon, the role-playing game, was published by West End Games in 1987. A second edition was released in 1992 with some updated rules. And the game was the official RPG of Star Wars all the way until 1999, because West End Games declared bankruptcy in 1998. Whoopsie-daisy. Yeah, kind of ended that on a sad note. Over the course of the game, more than 140 source books and adventure supplements were published. Holy crap. I know, right? The level of detail and description in these source books was, at the time, beyond anything that had been published for Star Wars or for any film fran franchise, really. The source material and details of the game 
were some of the underpinnings of the Expanded Universe books. The RPG came first. Yay! Authors working on novels for Star Wars were literally given RPG setting books and told to use that as reference material for what they were writing. Uh, Timothy Zahn, when he wrote the Heir to the Empire trilogy, which many people regard as the best Expanded Universe content, was handed a stack of source books for Star Wars the role-playing game and was told, you know, here's some details about species and planets and spaceships and all that other stuff, all in one nice place. Very convenient. Several important species, including Twi'leks and Rodians, were given those species names in the role-playing source books. That's news to me. They did not have names for the species. They had individual names, but... Nobody really knew what the species was called until the role-playing game decided to call them something. The game itself was built using West End Games' D6 system. Characters had a number of attributes and abilities, and you roll D6s based on these against a target number set by the Game Master. For example, you might make a dexterity check to grab a falling weapon. Your dexterity is usually a number such as 2D plus 1. In this case, that means you would roll two dice, two d6s, plus one. And you would sum up those two d6s, add the one, and if you beat the difficulty number decided by the game master, you would succeed. So it essentially it relied on the game master setting a variety of difficulties levels depending on how hard or how easy a thing is. Every time you rolled a skill, one of the dice it would be a wild die. Typically, this is a different color from the others, and it's used to determine critical effects. On a 6, it explodes, allowing you to roll it again and add the new number as well as that 6. So, you know, it can get a lot better. Uh, and if you get another 6, you can just keep doing that. Uh, we got some safety glasses for those exploding D6. However, on a 1, it has a couple of different effects that the Game Master can use to complicate things for the player. It's really up to the Game Master what they want to do with that. Players also have a number of different points that they use to influence how their player, how their character works. These are character points, force points, and dark side points. Character points let you add extra dice to a roll. Force points let you add multiple extra dice to a roll. But if you use the force in anger, you get dark side points. You can also get dark side points for doing objectively evil things. And if you get enough of them, your character gets taken over by the Game Master as you fall to the dark side. Overall, West End Games Star Wars D6 is a very solid game. I mean, with 140 different source books and adventure paths and stuff, it kind of has to be. It is, however, slightly dated by the standards of modern game design. If you want it, these days, you're in luck, because it got republished in a deluxe edition in 2018. So you don't have to go digging for a weird out-of-print thing. There's new copies that have like cleaned up artwork and better layout available. Yeah, I've seen uh, those box sets before. I've considered, I've considered getting it in the past, but just never really jumped on board. I'll probably pick it up at some point. I feel like it would just be nice to have. But, like I said... 1999 or 1998, West End Games goes bankrupt. The license is up for grabs. Scrambles. 
Wizards of the Coast picked it up in 99 and in 2000 released their own Star Wars role-playing game. These names are always the same and always confusing. As it came out shortly after The Phantom Menace, it included all the things from Star Wars Episode One in stats and rules. That's the one I had. An updated version was published in 2007, known as the Saga Edition, and that's what people usually call the Wizards of the Coast role-playing game, uh, Saga. Or, like, Star Wars role-playing Saga, because why not? Uh, the game is a D20 system, so it's based off the standard D20 framework and the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition slash 3.5. Characters have the six standard D&D ability scores, Strength, Dexterity, Constitution, Wisdom, Intelligence, Charisma. And you get a race, species, and a class, and the ability to go into prestige classes later. If you've played Dungeons & Dragons, you would probably be able to pick this game up fairly quickly. It has a few quirks, and the Saga Edition was like a second edition, essentially. Adjusting the game to be a little more streamlined, reducing the number of base classes, and improving how force powers worked. The D20 system Saga lasted for a decent amount of time, um, about 10 years, and was fairly popular. It was one of the big role-playing games. It was cool to have Wizards of the Coast publishing official Star Wars content uh, because it meant that you got a lot of a lot of stuff coming out and it included pretty much everything that came out in the prequel movies. So, some very neat stuff. The mechanics were kind of iffy. I think there were some issues with Jedi being a little overpowered. Yeah, Jedi had a, a lot of stuff that made them finicky and it's almost like if you're playing why would you do anything other than a jedi since you can both be a martial powerhouse you know like a fighter but also do all kinds of crazy spell stuff like a spellcaster so why would you really do anything different yeah based on what i've heard i haven't actually played saga edition jedi are overpowered force users are just stronger than everyone else and they start stronger and stay stronger yep but in 2010 wizards of the coast decided not to renew the license to publish star wars material for reasons known only to them that's like why <laughs> i have no idea in any case the game went had to go out of print and is currently unsupported however there was another. Dun, dun, dun. In 2012, Fantasy Flight Games picked up the Star Wars license and immediately started churning out some seriously good games and some not nearly as good games. Edge of the Empire was the first of the role-playing games for Star Wars. A couple others would be published later, combining it into an overall game known as Star Wars Role-Playing Game exactly the same as all the previous ones. Congratulations on the naming conventions. For ease of access, people usually call the Fantasy Flight version Edge of the Empire, because that was the first book that came out, and the other ones just are basically the same rules with a little bit of specialization added on. 
The three basic books for the system are Edge of the Empire, which is for playing as smugglers, bounty hunters, explorers, so far, so on and so forth. Age of Rebellion, which focuses on fighting the Empire. And Force and Destiny, which is about being Jedi, or Force users in general. There's also sub-books for The Force Awakens, which is about playing in the sequel movie time era. And uh, Clone Wars 1, which is about, you know, playing during the Clone Wars era. The biggest difference between the three books is that they all use a slightly different mechanic for providing player motivation. Edge of the Empire uses a mechanic called Obligation, where your characters all owe debts or are have a bounty on them or are addicted to something. They have some issue that forces them to do the sort of things that adventurers do. They're trying to repay this. They're trying to get money for drugs. They're trying to do whatever. They have an obligation that they have to fulfill, and that obligation can show up and bite them in the ass in the middle of a game. In Age of Rebellion, you have a duty, a specific goal that you want to accomplish in fighting the Empire and a specific way you want to go about doing it. Maybe you think that the duty is logistics. You want to strike at the Empire's logistics and stop them from doing it. Or maybe it's propaganda. You want to spread the information about how evil the Empire is and how good the Rebellion is. Or maybe you just want to kill some stormtroopers. And as you fulfill your duty, it improves your character and how you play. Force and Destiny has a, like, morality thing where because you're a Jedi and you're using the Force, you're trying to do good deeds, and if you fail, you start becoming evil. You know, j standard Jedi stuff. I kind of like that they have that system, like, codified as a gameplay mechanic, because, yeah, technically you have things like that in D&D &D when you're making your character, but unless you and the DM are, like, really into... RPing that part of the character, it doesn't necessarily have any mechanical function. Yeah, the, and the mechanical function in this is actually pretty solid because you can, at least in Edge of the Empire, you can take on more obligation as a starting character to get extra starting resources. Bro, I'm super over leveraged because I'm trying to go to space med school. Yeah, no, if you wanted to do something like that, that would totally be like you'd owe a bunch of money to gangsters to have paid for your medical training, and then your character could also have medical training. It works out pretty well. The game system does use custom dice, because it's Fantasy Flight Games, and of course it does. Uh... This has garnered some amount of criticism, because custom dice are kind of weird, and they don't have numbers, they have weird symbols on them. But once you actually play the game and start using the dice a little bit, you pick up what they do pretty quickly. The biggest thing is that there's essentially two types, which are good dice and not good dice. And you roll both of them together, depending on your skill at a thing and the difficulty of a task. And then they cancel each other out. The custom dice are used to form dice pools when you need to make a check. You roll a number of positive green dice based on your skill, or based on your attribute in a thing. If you, say, have four dexterity, I don't think it's actually called dexterity, but if you have four reflexes or whatever, you would roll four green dice. If you are 
performing an action that you are skilled in, say you have a couple of points in acrobatics or something, you would upgrade two of those dice to the yellow dice, which are d12s, and have even better results than the green dice. Depending on how difficult the action you're going for is, the game master would set a difficulty in a number of dice. Those would be like purple... I don't know what they're called. They're, they're just bad dice. So maybe it's moderately difficult. So you'd get three of them. And then if there was something more going on, something to bump that up, the DM could swap one of the, those for a red dice, which is like extra bad. It's going to get worse. Yeah, and then there's also like two more dice. They're D6s, blue and black. And they are sort of like minor issues. Like, oh, it's dark, add a black die. Oh, you have the right equipment, add a blue die. And then you shake this big handful of dice, roll it, and then cancel the different symbols on there. Um, there's success and failure symbols and advantage-disadvantage symbols. And these, you know, all cancel each other. And so you're left, after you cancel all these things out, with essentially knowing that you've succeeded or failed, and that you've done so with success, or, or you've succeeded or failed, and you've done so with advantage or disadvantage. Honestly, just rolling a d20 sounds easier. Yes, however, this provides a very granular level of telling you, of creating a story out of your thing. Because if you succeed with disadvantage, you've done the task, but something's happened that's not good for you. You open the door, but set off the alarm. And now people are alerted. If you fail the task with advantage, you don't do the thing, but something good has happened. You can't hotwire the door, but you notice that there's a vent over there that you might be able to sneak through. Or you succeed with advantage. You open the door silently, there's no one around. You fail with disadvantage. You attempt to open the door. Someone goes, hey, what are you doing over there? And you see a stormtrooper. It provides an integral storytelling aspect to the dice rolls. And there's also a mechanical aspect because the success and uh, the advantage-disadvantage can be spent on certain rolls to trigger mechanical effects, either from talents that your character has, or effects of gear, or certain things the dungeon, the game master controls. Okay, I'll, I'll, buy, I'll buy in on that. Again, it seems really weird until you use it a couple of times, and then you're like, oh, this is cool, and I like it. That's been my experience. The dice also have a, like, triumph and despair symbols, which are the critical success and failure. Doomed. Interestingly, those don't cancel each other. Eh. You can get both of them at the same time. So triumph is something very good happens. Despair is something pretty bad happens. It's pretty entertaining. It, the only downside is that people who are very, very skilled at a specific thing have a pretty high chance of always getting a triumph when they roll. Meaning it's very hard for them to fail stuff outright. Which, you know... Th that really only comes up with high-level characters 
and they probably shouldn't be failing stuff outright all the time. They're good at that one specific thing, so they should be able to do it always. The game also, another feature I like, is that it has a split health system. Players have wounds and they have strain. Wounds are physical damage. Strain is a stamina or non-physical damage tracker. Strain is much easier to heal than wounds, and can also kind of be spent as a resource using certain talents or abilities. Which is interesting because it means, oh, I failed this thing, I'm going to spend a couple of strain to, like, take a lesser outcome. Or, you know, you failed this role, the, dungeon, the game master is going to cause strain to you, and then you succeed this role, so you can spend your advantage to heal up some strain. As it's sort of the mental battle of flying this ship is hard, but oh, I got a lucky break. That makes me feel better. Don't strain yourself. Weapons that have a stun setting can choose to do strain damage rather than wound damage. So I really like Edge of the Empire, as I think is obvious from what I've just talked about. And I think it's got a really good selection of stuff to do. Sometimes I wish that there were certain races or options available. Are Ewoks a playable race? I don't know. I don't know if there are Ewoks. Uh, last I checked, there weren't um, Bothans, which is always kind of a questionable thing. That was one of the, one of the things I liked about the D20 game was the fact that Ewoks were uh, a playable race and they were just so different from all the other ones that it's like, yeah, if you have an Ewok in your party, they're just going to be this weird outlier. Uh, there's a fan-based version of it, but I don't think there's an official one. Come on, FFG, get on our level. Well, FFG is not going to publish more books for Edge of the Empire because they announced last year that they are developing a new Star Wars role-playing game. This was on the heels of them essentially axing their entire role-playing game development group. FFG, you're, what are you, what's going on, bro? You're being so weird lately. It's a corporate overlord thing. Is Asmodee doing this to you? Blink, blink twice if Asmodee's being mean to you. Asmodee got sold to a different group, and then again, and then, like, nine months later, sold again, and then did a bunch of reorganizing right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so Fantasy Flight Games has determined, I guess, that 10 years is the amount of time that you have to let this game run, and so a new game has to be brought out now. I mean, 10 years, that is a long time for, like, not having, like, a new edition, I guess. Well, they kept coming out with the new source books, the new, like, core books. You know, Edge of the Empire was for smugglers, Age of Rebellion was for rebellions, and so on and so forth. They were all interoperable, though, which was nice. You could play a class from Edge of the Empires in an Age of Rebellion game without a problem. And because of the way that Force power is scaled, um, most Jedi were pretty weak until very high level, at which point a non-Jedi would be incredibly strong in their specializations as well, and it kept the, like, playing field for character classes pretty level. I don't 
think I'm going to switch to a new game for Star Wars unless it's super amazing and the best thing ever. I have enough of the custom dice to last me quite a while. And you know that their new game is going to use an entirely new set of custom dice. I really hope not. But also, since they got rid of the entire development team for the existing game, the new team might not like the custom dice and it'll be something different. Hooray! In which case, I probably won't switch. But yeah, I, I like Edge of the Empire. I've played some games and run some games of it. Uh, the best one being a bounty hunter campaign that I did with a group of people where we were going to run a simple campaign, but we had like 12 people interested in it because it came out of a wargaming group. And so instead we created a thing where everyone would make a bounty hunter and you could then apply to go on a job that anyone who wanted to could run as a game master. I'm here to apply for the bounty. Well, it was, we would put a thing up in the Facebook group that we created for the game and say, I'm hosting, I'm going to run a bounty on this date. Uh, first four people to sign up get to, you know, go collect the bounty. That's actually kind of a cool way to do it. Uh, reminds me of, I can't remember if it was Pathfinder or D&D did it, but they had a system called like Adventure League. Adventure League is still around. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's what that's what it uh, reminded me of. Yeah, this was just a small group, you know, about a dozen people that we all played the X-Wing Miniatures game together. So we all kind of knew each other to some extent, which made it more viable. And yeah, we'd get together. We Whoever wanted to run one, we had a document for people wanting to run them about sort of like with guidelines for what you should be offering, how difficult it should be, what what sort of rewards these bounties would get, and we broke it down into like different classes of bounty and stuff. And hilariously, this was well before The Mandalorian came out and revealed that we were pretty spot on with how the Bounty Hunters Guild operated. <laughs> That's funny. Although our Bounty Hunter Guild was located in a space station rather than random post-Empire planet. Random mud planet. Yeah, random lava planet. Um, yeah, it was on a space station and was a little more organized in that, like, they sent out groups of people. Um, and because most of them did not own their own spaceship, that was one of kind of the running things, was it rather than send out four people, each of whom has their own spaceship, in these games, you're supposed to have, like, a group ship, and if the group is changing every week, that doesn't make as much sense. The Bounty Hunters Guild had a backlog of, like, guild-owned rental ships. I was gonna say, is there, like, uh, the Star Wars equivalent of, like, a Teamsters union that you have to go through? No, no. We just had a bunch of guild-owned rental ships, which were always kind of weird and sketchy. Sounds about right. We worked up an entire thing for this and with like a big long list of weird problems that they had or, you know, silly issues. Um, there was one that was just very normal cargo ship, except that the previous owner had been a Gand. That could be a problem. Well, Gans have a methane based atmosphere that they breathe. So the ship smelled like methane. <laughs> 
There was no way for them to get it out of the ventilation system or the upholstery or anything. So the ship just smelled like farts. There was another one where you could not use the weapons and the hyperdrive. You couldn't use the weapons while charging the hyperdrive. So if you wanted to make a jump, you had to like stop shooting for a couple of minutes. Um, and if you started shooting during that time, you, you couldn't jump, which led to some issues. Another person who was running a game came up with a thing where the, sh the previous owner had been fond of pranks and had set up the computer to attempt to, like, dump people into space. Was the owner's name Hal? Well, the thing was that there was, like, a sensor. If anyone, like, was getting dumped into space and went and, like, entered the airlock section, the doors would all slam shut. So that you wouldn't actually die in the cold, hard vacuum of space. But it, it made for an inter entertaining section of it. And because we were sort of rotating who anyone could run one, you could do whatever, I got to play in it as well. And I made a, um, I made a lawyer with a drug problem. <laughs> space law. Well, he was a lawyer who had a, he did criminal defense and bounty hunting related stuff. And he developed a drug problem and then a legal problem and had to le flee the planet he was on and ended up uh, working as a bounty hunter to make drug money. Don't worry, I've got a lot of experience in this. Oh yeah, no, he he was not good at combat of any sort. He had a essentially a shotgun and a briefcase. Uh, the briefcase had a hidden component for him to hide his space drugs, his glitter spice. And, like, he spent most of his time, like, trying to quote legal precedent at people to confuse them into doing what he wanted. Would the Empire even bother with having a law school? Yes, but they would also be super biased. Like, they, the Empire is all about the rule of law, but those laws are deeply unfair and biased towards themselves. Definitely not applicable to any real world situation. Definitely not. 15 years in the Gulag, comrade. Gulag, Isocube, it's all the same. So yeah, that's a great thing. Um, I really like the Star Wars as a setting. The ability to have a small group of people flying around in space, taking odd jobs, or you know, working towards a major problem. Perhaps there's a Jedi Temple that needs to be saved, destroyed, hidden in time or something you know there's a whole host of cool science fiction things you can do it, it's a good setting and there have been so many good games for star wars that no matter what you want out of it you can kind of find something to play i'd agree with that yeah so star wars i would recommend that you play a star wars role-playing game i have a feeling we're gonna end up revisiting star wars some point anyway, since there's, you know, all the board games. Oh, yeah, no, we have to talk about some of the board games. We have to talk about Star Wars Legion. We have to talk about, um, yeah, th there's a whole list of Star Wars things we have to talk about. Stay tuned, nerds. We may even devote an entire episode just to the Star Wars EU. Please bring it back. <laughs> yes, we need more Star Wars European Unions. So that's Star Wars, summed up in one 50-minute thing. Yay. 
But before we go, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today, I'm going to talk about Root. So has uh, your opinion of it changed substantially since last week? No. I don't think so. I got to play it again, so I feel a little more confident talking about it. Root is a board game published in 2018. It is a asymmetrical strategy game slash worker placement game slash role-playing game. It's very asymmetrical. Get in here, asymmetry. I love me some of that asymmetry. Yes, it is incredibly asymmetrical in terms of play styles and faction play. Set in a sort of red wall, watership down-esque fantasy forest filled with little animals that talk and build houses and villages and stuff. There are up to six factions, I believe, at this point with the expansion. Uh, the Marquis de Cat, the Eerie, the Woodland Alliance, the Nomad, the Riverfolk Company, the Lizard Cult, the Underground Empire. Is that moles? Yes, and the Corvid Conspiracy. Ooh, I don't know if I want to be moles or crows. I haven't played with either of those two, so I can't tell you which one's better. Essentially, each one plays in a very different way, and you go around and you attempt to either score 30 victory points or take control of a certain number of locations on the board. These are our woods now, son. Yes, and certain players can't actually pull off that taking control of locations on the board and have to just get victory points. Um, Like I said, it's very asymmetrical. Everybody scores victory points in a different way. On a player's turn, they have essentially three phases. Birdsong, Daylight, and Evening. During this, they perform certain activities based entirely on their faction. For example, the Eerie is one of my favorites. They are bird people. Their thing is that they have a decree, which is a set of cards across the top of their board, that in Birdsong, they have to add a card to the add one to two cards to the decree. In Daylight, they have to execute the decree in the order and number of cards that are in it. So they'll have a certain number of cards in Recruit, and so they'll have to recruit at the locations those cards specify. They'll have a certain number of cards in move, so they'll have to move from the location specified by those cards. They'll have a certain number of cards in battle, so they'll have to battle at the location specified in those cards. They'll have a certain number of cards in build, so they'll have to build in the location specified by those cards. They're kind of, they're stuck doing this thing in order. And if they can't, if they are ever in a situation where they can't fulfill the decree, they have a collapse and, like, lose the rest of their turn and have to start that decree all over again. Which makes them strong in that they can set up in advance a lot of stuff and perform a lot more actions than other people can. But fragile, because if you can break part of the decree, if you make it so that they run out of troops to deploy or that they can't actually deploy troops in a location that they have to deploy troops from, then they lose the rest of their turn. 
The Marquis de Cat, on the other hand, is an economic engine. You have to place buildings, and those buildings can then let you get soldiers or get items or get the materials to build more buildings. Damn fat cats. And so that's what they do. They only get a certain number of actions per turn, but depending on how many buildings they have on the map, that can do a lot of stuff or it can do a little bit of stuff. And, you know, they get to pick exactly which of these actions they want to do. The Woodland Alliance doesn't really have a standing military or buildings. They're rebels. They go around spreading sympathy and then organizing revolts where they overthrow the other people. They fight in a very different way. They maneuver and recruit troops very differently. The Nomad is a single person, is a, like, raccoon or a possum or something that travels through the woodlands doing quests or exploring ruins or assisting as a mercenary with one of the other factions. So they score points, again, completely differently. Their entire thing is that they get point, are all of their actions are determined by the items that they own. Like, the equipment that they carry with them. Which they can build themselves, but it's much easier if one of the other bigger factions builds it for them. Because when one of the bigger factions builds it for you, you can purchase it by giving them cards. The only other faction that I've really played with or seen played is the Riverfolk, who are capitalist otters. Who have an economic engine where they trade with everyone and get funding through that but then they can also spend that to build trading posts and then those trading posts don't come back when they're destroyed so they kind of run down how good they are fairly quickly i guess it makes sense for the for the otters to be capitalists if they're controlling the rivers and you've got a river-based trade empire but i still think they missed an opportunity by not making the uh cats the hyper capitalists no, I'm okay with it because the cats are like the nobility that are kind of douchebags. Oh, never mind then. That works. Uh, the Marquita cat. Yeah, he's the like, he's the ruler of the forest. And then the Eerie tries to retake their ancient claim to it while the Woodland Alliance is an alliance of rebels. Or the Viet Cong, depending on you, how you feel about it. <laughs> and the Nomad just wanders around stabbing things. It's a fun game. It's has a very high complexity, and that can make it difficult to teach somebody initially. Because if you are trying to learn what your faction does, it can be very hard to also help someone who doesn't know what theirs does, because it doesn't work the same way. They might use cards in a completely different way than you do. Their turns might happen in different sections it's it's complicated however everything is written out in the rulebook the rulebook is very well written and very thorough it answered pretty much every question that came up while we were playing the game every time we'd be like oh what is this like what happens when you do this look in the rulebook and it lays it out for you um so it's thoroughly play tested i i like root I think Root has a lot of potential. I think it's really good for people who want a more complicated game. And the asymmetry aspect of it and the fact that you can change up what factions you're playing 
means that it has a lot of replay value. I think we're going to have to do this one on a tabletop simulator. Kind of surprised they don't have an official expansion module for it, but it looks like it's on there. We'd probably want to play the birds versus the cats. Always a good idea. Um, Because if you're just playing two players, that is the, like, proper play. Nomad, nomad versus a regular player. <laughs> it the regular player would win instantly, essentially. Um, the nomad couldn't do enough to get points. But also sounds like a candidate for uh, Winter Game Fest. Whenever we can do that again, yes, would be great for something like that. So yeah, root. I think it's good. I think it's very complex and can be a little hard to teach, but. I feel like once you've gotten it down, once you've played a game or two, it's actually not super long. And it holds up really well as being interesting to play. And having a lot of, like, tactical depth to it. Someday in the far future, we'll have to do an episode that's uh, compare and contrast between Root and uh, the original Dune, since... uh, it sounds very much like Dune, uh, just not nearly as complicated. Uh, we'll have to play the original Dune first, of course. I keep going back and forth on whether or not I want to buy it, because I love Dune and everything about Dune. Uh, but the board game is incredibly complex and actually needs like a full complement of six players for the game to really work. And I don't know if I'm ever going to see that in my lifetime. Uh, this route even has a version where you can run one of the players as essentially an AI. Ooh, nice. So you could theoretically play it with a single person, a solo mode. We should do an entire uh, episode about solo gaming, because I think that's one thing that's definitely underrated in the game space. And for a long time, I poked a lot of fun at it, being like, oh, look at that poor chump playing a board game on their own. So that's been our show. Thank you for listening, as always. Uh, and again, as always, you can find us on social media at Knoll Country on Twitter and just Knoll Country on Instagram. We should be posting more. We know. We will. We'll take some photos of stuff and post it. I got to I gotta start some beefs on Twitter to drive our numbers. Yeah, you got to find like a mid-level fantasy author who has bad takes on stuff and just start doggedly following them around and talking shit about them. I could probably do that. I've, I've got a couple names on top of my head. Yeah, mid-level. Don't, don't do it with anyone who has, like, a legal team. Damn. Yeah, I know who you're thinking of. <laughs> um, Ed, got anything to plug? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Adam Madness. Um, hopefully I'll start posting again there soon, making some interesting progress with some stuff here so that'll probably show up later and then uh if you're of the wargaming ilk uh there's a lot of ukrainian companies out there that are doing charity events to uh help themselves and then there's also some other uh u.s and european based companies that are doing ukraine charity events so donate to them get some cool ukraine themed stuff for your uh, tabletop yeah And with that, go Knowles. Go Knowles!